From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, helping employers and employees navigate coronavirus. For instance, if workers get sick, they may be in a pinch. It's taking some patients weeks to recover, but in Colorado, surveys show many companies only offer a day of sick leave a month. So even at sort of the high end of granted sick time, it is still less than 14 days. Plus, why companies should cross-train. We promise that's different from CrossFit. Then... The House will come to order. How women wield power at the state capitol. Also, libraries hire social workers. And later, beetles have ravaged Colorado's high country. But there's new evidence forests are unexpectedly resilient. There is quite good forest recovery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Coronavirus means new habits are forming beyond don't touch your face and wash your hands for 20 seconds. Here's Robert Gilbert of Fort Collins. One of the things that I'm doing each night is bringing home my laptop in case the office closes each day. And that way I can work from home without worrying about having to go back into the office just because it almost seems inevitable that at some point somebody in the office is somehow going to be connected to the coronavirus. And that way I'm prepared by having my laptop home each night. Robert responded to my tweet asking how Coloradans are affected by coronavirus in big ways and small. Also on Twitter, Stan Pedzik says his office has limited entry to essential people only. He and his co-workers use hand sanitizer moving from one area of the office to the other. And there's an order to stay home if you have a fever or cough. Let's get perspective on how this outbreak touches the workplace. Labor attorney Curtis Graves is here from Employers Council in Denver. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And Tamarin Trujillo directs HR services at the council. Hi, Tamarin. Good morning. I want to start with a pickle that workers could be in. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, workers under five years of service get just seven days sick leave per year. You know, quarantines can last two weeks, we're hearing. What would have to give in that scenario? Well, a couple of different things might give. Employers might combine sick leave with vacation. Employers who do that formally call it PTO, paid time off. Okay, or the they, least fun vacation ever. The least fun, absolutely. Um, so they could do that for this period of time during the coronavirus. They could also extend additional sick time to employees, which is not a bad idea. It's a nice thing to do for employees. In Colorado, we did some survey information on it, and uh, lots of employers provide a day of sick time a month, which is still only 12 days. So even at sort of the high end of granted sick time, it is still less than 14 days. But there's going to need to be some sort of concession made. Ideally, yes. I mean, you don't want your employees to be unpaid. I mean, you could. You, it is possible to just send employees home and not pay them. But that is not an employee-friendly situation, and especially at this time when people are sort of very nervous. Curtis, how easily can a worker be fired for failing to show up to work if they're sick? Like, what protections are in place for someone who either thinks they should be isolating themselves or who might get the legal order to self-quarantine? Many employers are covered by, for example, the Family and Medical Leave Act. FMLA, yeah. FMLA. And so if an employer has 50 or more employees within 75 miles and the person has worked there 1,250 hours in the last 12 months, they'd be covered by this. 
And that would give them 12, up to 12 weeks off if they had what was called a serious medical condition. And coronavirus would presumably well, fall under that? I would say presumably. I mean, it involves a hospital stay and some other contingencies, but I think most employers would extend the FMLA period to those people. Now, that is not paid time off unless they have, uh, as Tamara mentioned, some PTO or vacation time they could use, but they could certainly get the time off. But as to your question, um, you know, could an employer fire somebody? There's not much that would prevent them from doing that, although it's you know, certainly not a course of action we would recommend, uh, particularly if the person's taking time off to protect their coworkers. The theme I'm hearing is that a lot of employees are subject to the goodwill of their employers. Yes, we are an at-will state, so that is essentially what that means. Okay. What are the most common questions you're getting right now from employers as it relates to coronavirus? Uh, one I received recently, Ryan, was what to do when a company learns that an employee has coronavirus and they're in quarantine. Okay. How would you answer it? Well, we are still formulating an answer, but on the one hand, we don't want to incur some sort of a panic, but on the other hand, they're going to find out about it anyway. So we've got to give them the truth. We just want to couch that in as much uh, reassuring language as possible. So the idea is don't withhold that then from right. the other employees. Right. You, working on the phrasing makes sense. That would be true of any memo, I suppose. Yeah, employees find out the truth. So trying to sugarcoat it really doesn't provide a, a trusting environment. Make sure that you have all the facts. As an employer, before you go to employees with any information about an employee who's under quarantine, make sure that you have all the facts about why the employee is under quarantine. Is the employee experiencing symptoms or is or were they in touch with somebody who was? And yet there are some privacy concerns here. In other words, you can't say, it's Bill, it's John, it's Jane. That's generally true. Um, you do want to consider the privacy situation, but in disclosing information about the situation, employees could potentially guess or if could know. the company is small enough. Right. And another aspect of this is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which would protect somebody if they have a disability. Now, uh, it used to be that a disability was something that we said lasted six months or longer, so it couldn't be a cold or a flu or a broken bone. But in 2009, when they came out with the ADA Amendments Act, they essentially said that they wouldn't focus on how long it lasted, but how serious it was while it was ongoing. Fascinating. So, you know, an unanswered question at this point is whether someone would find protection under the ADA for something that was transitory but extremely serious while they had it. That is, if there was some kind of retribution, might there be protections right, exactly. in place? It, it oh, would affect your question about somebody being terminated for it. And again, you know, by the time this gets sorted out in the courts, it may be long after the uh, coronavirus is no longer a threat anyway. But these are questions whose answers may persist into future. And epidemics. that is why we, as Tamara was saying, we recommend forbearance and not going out and terminating a bunch of people and trying to do the best that we can to be compassionate. I heard from one Colorado man whose office this week is doing a telework drill, figuring out if all systems are go, should the staff need to work remotely. What else should employers be planning for? Well, one of the things that we were talking about earlier is just looking into your cleanliness processes. Do your cleaning crew, how do they operate? What are they using? Are they using cleaning products that would kill the virus? So that would be something to look at. Also, cross-training is a big thing. Seeing if you can get as many people up on needed skills as possible so that if a group of employees or if several employees ended up going out, that there were others who could cross-train and come in in an emergency and pitch it. Depth on the bench, if you will. Exactly. Do you anticipate that some workplaces will simply become so short-staffed 
that companies might have to just pause their operations? I think the answer is yes. Uh, I, I mean, we so. saw this with our conference last Friday where I was uh, aggrieved at having gotten on the road a little bit late and found that there was no traffic to my destination. So I think we're starting to see it already. I mean, you know, uh, on the news, somebody said, don't go on a cruise ship. So that industry is now on pause for several months. Does a crisis like this demonstrate how uneven the safety net is, like from workplace to workplace? You know, we talked about FMLA, but that only covers employees of a certain size. You know, these matters are being debated even as we speak at the state legislature, of course. Well, I think it demonstrates the lack of forethought that individual employers have considered. We've had pandemics or threats of pandemics in the past, so this isn't a completely new situation. This one seems to be different for some reason. People seem to be a little bit more panicked than they have in the past. So I think that the situation does demonstrate that employers really need to be very thoughtful about how they want to relate with their employees and what kind of support they want to provide employees in an emergency. There's a lot of concern that workers who can't afford to take time off will expose their co-workers or customers. Do you share those concerns? Is that on your mind? In a word, yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's why it behooves employers to really be very generous in expanding their time off policies on a temporary basis, perhaps, so that they can protect all of their employees and also protect their environments and potentially their customers as well. I mean, if you want to look at it this way, it is a bottom line question in the long run, I suppose. Not in addition to just being one of human decency. Right. And that is another reason why small employers, large employers too, but small employers should really think about what are the contingencies they could have. Could they bring in a shadow staff for a a short amount of time Hmm. to cover their business? Is it possible that coronavirus represents a kind of watershed about what's appropriate in the workplace? I'm just going to admit it. I have come to work not feeling well in the past. Part of that has been necessity. Part of that has been maybe a workaholic nature. But it strikes me that it may in the coming days and weeks become increasingly unacceptable for someone who's sneezing and coughing to enter the workplace. Well, I think that may be true in certain workplaces, workplaces that are very small. There may be a tendency to try and just get by and Employers really need to think about what work environment they want to have. Do they want to have an environment where people and employees are really encouraged to take care of themselves and, by extension, take care of their coworkers? Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Tamron Trujillo and Curtis Graves with perspective on coronavirus and the workplace. They're with Employers Council in Denver. One could argue that the real power brokers at the Colorado State Legislature are Democrats or Republicans, but women. From the Speaker of the House. The House will come to order. To Vice Chair of the Committee that controls the state's purse strings. The Joint Budget Committee will come to order. Happy Friday, everyone. Uh, We are starting off today with figure setting for the Department of Natural Resources. Colorado has long been a leader nationally in the number of women serving in the legislature, but there have been challenges along the way. 
A little more than 25 years ago, Lynn Kathleen did a deep dive on the interactions between men and women in the Colorado legislature. And we thought with his 25-year anniversary, it would be a great time to check back in on things. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you. Also with us, former state representative Amy Stevens. She served from 2007 to 2015 with a stint as House Majority Leader. That's when Republicans were in control. She's now based in D.C. Amy, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I'll just say that in the introduction, we heard from House Speaker Casey Becker and Joint Budget Committee uh, Diana Esgar. In 2020, 47% of the Colorado State Legislature is comprised of women, second only to Nevada at 52%. Lynn, you've been quoted as saying of female legislators, you have to play the game as the game's played. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess that one of the things that ends up showing up in a lot of the research, and not just my own, but um, a lot that has happened since I did it 25 years ago, is that there are distinct styles. There are distinct things that women are um, doing within their legislative um, interactions. And yet, at the same time, we see that the institutions tend to have kind of gendered aspects to them. And so to be successful, you have to kind of find that middle ground Well, let's talk specifics there. So what is an attribute that in general, and I realize that we're speaking generally, women bring to a legislature that the environment of the legislature isn't necessarily conducive to? Well, some of this has to do with um, the way that women are in general. So this is aggregate, right? There can always be a woman who is uh, different than the aggregate. But in aggregate, uh, women have a tendency to be more um, cooperative and have a conversational style that is um, one of more interactive. And so when you move into more parliamentary style rules and Diana DeGette is a marvelous parliamentarian. And so that's a... You're that's speaking another, of the representative yes, of Denver in Congress. Yes, she's amazing. Um, and so it's not that women can't do those types of styles, but it goes against this ability to kind of find consensus, to find the interpersonal stories, to allow for there to be a give and take instead of trying to one up or, you know, follow strict rules. And it's in those strict rules that you start to not have some of the the opportunities that I think the female style allows for. Amy Stevens, does that resonate with you having served in the Colorado legislature? You know, I think it depends when we talk about committee hearings versus being on the floor. Mm. Uh, And I know that the research uh, that was done at least 25 years ago dealt with committee. And um, I think right today we have 27 positions of chairs and vice chairs of committee amongst women uh, in the Colorado legislature. Those are interesting dynamics. Rules are rules. Every year, uh, you know, we have a whole book. On House and Senate rules, it's it's terribly boring, but necessary reading if you if you are to know how to navigate uh, the legislature. And I would say uh, that it is important to know the rules, and it's important when women are debating on the House floor, particularly, I believe, uh, to know those House rules. You analyzed twelve committee hearings twenty five years ago. Mm-hmm. You looked at the transcripts. You tried to find what they told you about interactions between men and women. How. Um, men 
um, might dominate things and not leave as much of, of a place for women. What did you find were the big takeaways back then? And to what extent do you think that's changed? Well, some of the big takeaways were driven by um, kind of unexpected findings in a sense. I was interested in looking at whether or not a critical mass of women would um, change the dynamics of how much women could have an influence in public policy, and because that was kind of the big question at the time, as, as it is today, actually. And what I discovered was by looking at the conversational dynamics in the hit hearings was that the, um, the more women there were on a committee, the um, actually the more verbally aggressive the men became. And so it was kind of exactly the opposite of what one would expect. One would think if you had more women that they would have more time on the, you know, be able to speak and so on. But actually the men became more verbally aggressive. Fascinating. Do, do you ascribe some sort of intent to that? I mean, naturally, my reaction is, are the men threatened? Is that why they're doing that? Or is that not for a researcher to say? Yeah, I don't think that is for a researcher to say. I mean, I think so much of this is really, you know, kind of our implicit um, biases as well as our socialization. Some of this has to do with um, the ways that uh, the particular bills that people were actually bringing up, uh, women witnesses are treated very differently, for example, so? by women chairs versus men. <gasps> um, so in my data, it was really stark that women witnesses were given the opportunity, and I'm going to back up by first saying a woman who was um, a a legislator who was introducing a bill was treated quite differently too. And so she could get through her, she she had trouble getting through her entire introduction to her bill without being questioned by either, usually the chair of the committee, because it's usually not opened up yet to everybody to ask questions. Um, but my data found that when men were introducing their bills, uh, they, for the most part, were able to get through their entire introduction before questions were opened up. This is still happening. I was looking through um, recent research, and these same dynamics are happening. Uh, in fact, you see them on the Supreme Court. And so I think that, you know, we may think we've come really far on this, but there are these dynamics conversationally that are happening so interruptions, there was a real difference there. Amy Stevens, does that reflect your experience? Any surprises in what you heard there? Mm, I'm going to push back just a little bit. Uh, having, uh, you know, been on committees, uh, you know, I do think 25 years later, one of the aspects of this research I found very interesting is you talked about the focus of professionalism in terms of committee hearings, um, knowing your stuff, so to speak. And I completely agree with you there. And in that time frame, okay, uh, it was uh, uh, Roy Romer was our governor. Uh, you know, Bill Owens was around the corner. Republicans uh, held the majority for the most part, although there were always some tight races. Um, I would say to you that we are in a whole different era with the advent of internet and um, being able to watch on TV now uh, goings on, um, you know, particularly on the floor, but being able to hear committees at a much greater, um, a greater rate. And I think you hear very differently uh, when I listen from an office to hear a committee hearing versus being there and seeing the dynamics. Mm. And I have seen a lot of committee 
hearings change, started out on one way and totally turned because that person was so influential. You know, most times you go into a committee hearing nowadays, you can size up what the vote's going to be. And then sometimes with rigorous debate, you may be able to change one or two votes. Uh, You might have people hanging in the the wind, so to speak. So I'm going to push back because um, I might have seen this more on the floor, on the House floor, uh, but on the House floor, you have timing uh, to speak. You know, you have to give and yield the floor to each other. Um, In a committee hearing, however, you do have the right still today to have an opening for your House bill before being interrupted. And I think people take that pretty personally when they are interrupted. Well, Amy Stevens, I am hearing, and uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm, I'm hearing that some of the dynamics that Lynn Kathleen observed some 25 years ago were not a part of your daily experience in the legislature. Do you think that's true? Uh, yes, I think um, there were different dynamics. I, I think there's some there's truth in some of this research in terms of uh, some of the issues that are brought forward by women. Um, I participated legislatively with the National Conference of State Legislators uh, for women's issues, and I uh, also was a, a very actively involved. And yes, women really do carry a lot of health, human service. Uh, they they carry a lot of bills. But today also, uh, just look at Crisanta Duran a year ago or two years ago when she was speaker and really running the whole transportation issue, right? I mean, she was setting the tone of of how transportation uh, was or wasn't going to operate in terms of our funding for Colorado. That's a huge... Uh, that's a huge win, I think, and a huge mark forward for 25 years. The other thing I want to point out, though, Ryan, is there is a, a documentary that documents, I think, the last 25 years and more called Strong Sisters. It's a documentary. Uh, and Meg Froelich, who's currently in the legislature, uh, worked on this documentary. And it, it has both Dems and Republican women. It's great watching. Um, I think your audience, if they have the chance to, should see it. It covers a lot of what Lynn's talking about and also where we are today. And I think that's helpful. Lynn, let's wrap up with what you think the takeaways are 25 years later. I mean, it, it's been interesting, I know, for you to have read this research, uh, and to think of yourself 25 years ago. What, what still resonates to you in what you found 25 years ago? Well, I think the thing that resonates is that I, I think that, you know, we we grow up in very uh, gendered ways. I mean, the very first thing that we ever get asked when a baby is born is, did you have a girl or a boy? And there's a reason for that, because we need to, you know, <laughs> we we want to know what are we putting them in, what color, how are we acting with them? And some of these things are so subtle. And what I would say is that we have the ability to um, see these as male and female as both strengths. I, none of my research was about making it, um, trying to say that it was having less ability to do good. Lynn Kathleen, public policy researcher from Denver. About 25 years ago, she wrote about the interaction between men and women in the Colorado legislature. And Amy Stevens, former State House Majority Leader, now in D.C. This is Colorado Matters. CPR News is here to answer your questions about newly confirmed coronavirus cases in Colorado. With CPR, we promise you'll get the facts and not the hype. Go to CPR.org for the latest on what we know from the scientific and health communities and what you can do in your daily life. Get up-to-date information and sign up for The Lookout, our daily newsletter. That's all at CPR.org. 
Public libraries are a place to find answers in books or online, and increasingly they're places where people connect with social services, be it benefits or housing. It's why libraries have added social workers to their staffs. That includes the Pikes Peak Library District, as KRCC's Abigail Beckman reports from Colorado Springs. How are things going today? Are you? Well, I'm still on the waiting list. I'm still trying to uh, get my intake done. In a crowded common area of the Penrose Library in downtown Colorado Springs, Alicia Kwande visits quietly with a patron. So I'm just waiting on that, um, touching base with Jansen and you, of course, here at the library. The woman she's speaking with has asked us not to use her name for privacy reasons. She lives at a shelter downtown and spends her days at the library. It's snowing outside and she's babysitting for another mother from the shelter. A toddler sleeps in a stroller next to her. Here at the library, it's warm, it's free, and there's a sense of community. Kwande, she says, has been a big part of that. She's been a big help for us, you know, to single moms and myself that has, you know, addiction problems trying to get it to treatment. Their exchange is just one example of the work Kwande does as a social worker for the Pikes Peak Library District. She's quick to recognize the many social services in Colorado Springs for their work, but she says the library is just another avenue to make contact. I've definitely connected with a few people that, you know, are looking for support to make some changes, not experiencing homelessness currently, but yeah, the majority, definitely. That's the nature of of the downtown libraries in most cities. Deborah Walsh is the social work coordinator for Jefferson County Public Library in the Denver area. As a representative for the National Association of Social Workers, she says there are an estimated 70 to 100 people nationwide with the same job. So you've seen them pop up in different urban centers, um, San Francisco, you know, first, and then Denver has a large program as well. And, you know, cities have a lot more people. And so the math works out that there therefore are a lot more people experiencing homelessness. And it seems like a lot of the social work programs have come into libraries to serve that population in particular. For many people with nowhere else to go, libraries can offer a gift of space. But Walsh says their presence can also bring an unfair stigma to public libraries. It's easier to dehumanize folks and say, oh, the homeless people are there, don't go. But she says... A lot of people in America are really one or two paychecks away or like one medical emergency or one sort of bad thing happening from becoming, quote unquote, a homeless person. And so some of the humanity is lost, I think, when we use those labels. For Kwande, it's a matter of perception. To the general public, it may seem like libraries are embracing a role as de facto day shelters. But I definitely, having worked here, see it as a library, you know, and people use it for whatever they need to use it for. Both Kwande and Walsh say gauging who wants help is the delicate part of the job. Both are social workers for large library districts. Kwande serves nearly a dozen locations. Walsh isn't far behind with 10. They work closely with library staff and spend as much time as possible walking the library floor, building relationships and taking mental notes of the people there. Kwande says it's been a process. We have a lot of regular patrons, so they... As I've gotten to know people, sometimes they'll come up and be comfortable enough to ask me a question or feel like they can do that. Um, I've walked around and just let people know who I am 
and just kind of leave it at that. You know, I'm a social worker here. I'm here five days a week, so you can find me. Measuring the success of those interactions has also been a process. And Walsh says it's something library social workers across the country handle differently. For Kwande, her role continues to develop. The Pikes Peak Library District says adding a social worker to its staff helps fill a gap the traditional library personnel weren't prepared to meet furthering its mission to connect people with resources, whatever those may be. And Abigail's in the studio now. Hi, Abigail. Hey, Ryan. I understand this program is ongoing, and you checked back in with Alicia Quande, the social worker from your story. How has her work developed since your first reporting? So one thing she really said is um, she has more engagement with the community. When we first talked, she was really new, and uh, a lot of people in the library would ask her where to find books or certain resources, <laughs> and that's not at all what she does. So she would help if she could, but now um, they recognize her as a person for resources for people experiencing homelessness. Um, and she also knows the homeless community, so a lot of people recognize her and um she can ask them how they're doing, help them get in touch and kind of further their situation. But she um, had to build that trust. She did. Yeah. yeah. And that's been over 18 months. So one thing she's done also is started a group called Connect, and they meet on Wednesday mornings at the library. And it's just people who are currently experiencing homelessness, people who maybe have um, experienced homelessness in the past. And they see it as a safe place to talk and be heard, um, get some of their questions answered. And they're working to get some changes um, accomplished through the city. So that's really their hope is um, that they might actually be able to influence the city and especially the service providers a bit um, and just inform how they're providing services. So this could lead to some policy changes. Like what? What would Quande like to see? She really recognizes the city's efforts so far. There's actually a gentleman whose entire job is to address the issue. He's a homelessness prevention and response coordinator, but she really wants to see more efforts put toward prevention. People are paying attention. I think the need is just exceeding what's already happening and we're just playing catch up constantly, you know. I'm a big proponent of preventative services where if there's some ways that you could recognize that someone's on the brink of homelessness, keeping them in their apartment, keeping them in their house is so much more cost effective and it's also better for them. It's less traumatizing. And she says that uh, once someone is homeless, it's much harder to get them housed again, especially if they get evicted. And we have really high eviction rates here in El Paso County. Ah, what are some of the things Colorado Springs is already doing, Abigail? There's a homelessness initiative plan that's been in place for um, maybe about two years now. One thing, they have added low barrier shelter beds, so you don't have to be sober to get in. They did that as a response to this camping ban that we have. People were camping along Fountain Creek, and once that was made illegal, the city had to respond by adding a place for those people to go, regardless of, of sobriety at that moment. Right. Sobriety was the determining factor of whether you could get in or not. Right. Huh. And so people were left out in the cold, and this is the way the city city changed that. Um there's also the Help COS campaign. So you see this along the roadways. A lot of times in medians, there will be signs that say handouts don't help. And uh, there's a phone number on there. And that gives people a way to donate directly to organizations that help people. It's called the continuum of care rather than, you know, handing people cash, which the city is asking people not to do. Um, they're also working to provide more services for homeless veterans, families, and teens here in the city. And one interesting fact, just in talking with the city's homelessness prevention and response coordinator, yeah. a majority of people experiencing homelessness here in Colorado Springs are from El Paso County. And um, the population has really actually held steady. Last year's point in time homeless count found that there were only 11 more people counted than the previous year. So 
Our numbers are average for a city of this size. The population is very visible, which makes it seem like it's bigger than it actually is. But overall, we're seeing a 45% increase in homelessness in Colorado Springs since 2015. And your point that many of the folks who are experiencing homelessness are from here blows out of the water the myth that the homeless have come from somewhere else and are collecting here, are camping here. Exactly. It's a locally grown issue. It is. In your follow-up with Alicia Quande, you also checked in on the woman in the story who was living in a shelter and babysitting for another mother at the library. Where is she now? So she's actually still homeless. Um, She still comes to the library during the day. Alicia said she's been camping outside in Colorado Springs for the past year. She does have potential opportunity to move out of state to what could be a better situation. But this just really illustrates the chronic nature of homelessness in Colorado Springs and how difficult it is to regain that traction once you are homeless, not only here in Colorado Springs, but in a lot of places for many people. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Abigail Beckman, a reporter and Morning Edition host at KRCC in Colorado Springs, which is now part of the CPR family. It's one of the quirkiest parts of skiing, telling friends you're headed down Hairbag Alley, The Heathen, or Pants Pooper. And those are the ski runs we can say on the radio. With scores of trail names to keep track of, it helps that many are unforgettable. Mad Tea Party. I mean, Mary Jane always sticks with you. Well, I like Bradley's Bash because my name is Bradley. Where do these memorable monikers come from? We got that question through Colorado Wonders recently, and CPR's Stina Sieg headed to the mountains to find out. My first stop is Granby to meet the Ebel family on vacation from Fort Collins. There's Nora. There's 11. Ansel Ebel, and I'm seven. I'm Frida, and I'm nine. Plus their big sister, 12-year-old Elsa, who says this question is from all of them and popped up after a day of skiing at Winter Park. Because there's this big map by the dinner table that we were looking at, and then we wondered, like, how people named all of the ski runs. So I head off to talk to someone who can tell me more. Jen Miller public relations and communications manager for Winter Park Resort. And we are sitting in front of the balcony house across from the gondola. The resort is now in its 80th season. So most of it was named long before Miller's time. But there's so much history and lore surrounding Winter Park's more than 150 trails that there's a book dedicated to them, which Miller has in hand, ready to answer the evil kids' questions. Okay, so here it goes. First up, Nora wants to know what's up with all those trails related to Alice in Wonderland. Why are they named that? Like, did somebody really like Alice in Wonderland or something? Yes, somebody did. One of Winter Park's founders, Steve Bradley. The rumor is that he could recite Alice in Wonderland or parts of it. And he bestowed a whole section of Winter Park with names from the Lewis Carroll book. White Rabbit, Jabberwocky. Miller jokes that was likely long before copyright laws were strictly enforced. Okay, so then Nora wanted to know about... Baldy's shoot. Jim Baldwin was a much-loved member of the Winter Park Ski Patrol in the 1970s. So beloved, Miller reads from her trusty guide, that when he died skiing on a nearby glacier, Ski Patrol pushed management to immortalize him. The double black diamond ski run bearing his name can be found between Jeff's shoot an awe shoot. And that shoot as in C-H-U-T-E. Yeah, puns are also really popular with these names. 
Miller says honoring people with ski trails is common. Retta's run, another of the kids' questions, was named for a volunteer with the Adaptive Skiing Program who died of cancer. Forever Eva is for Eva Perry, the wife of an acclaimed botanist. And Mary Jane isn't about pot, contrary to popular belief. It remembers a well-known madam from the 1800s. And every once in a while, there's a run named after someone who can still ski down it. I had a trail named after myself called Slifer Express. Rod Slifer, now 85, was part of the crew who opened Vail in the 1960s. It was a small operation then, but its few runs still needed to be called something. So during the day, the guys would walk around these nameless routes. And then at night? We might sit around to maybe a six-pack of beer or something like that and name trails. While many were named in honor of the 10th Mountain Division from World War II, the others were inspired by all sorts of things. A run that sort of curled around like a ram's horn became ram's horn. A trail with easy viewing from spectators became Lokma, as in, Lokma, here I come. <laughs> and Slifer says once these were scribbled down in a notebook and agreed to over beers, that was it. I don't recall any, any trails that were renamed. The original name stuck. Regardless of whether a name came from history or just a random whim. So Elsa, Ansel, Nora, and Frida, the answer is, there is no one answer about how trail names come to be. There's just a collection of stories, a collection that expands each time a ski resort does. At Winter Park, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Now, also in the high country, you'll see thousands of acres of pine trees that have been turned into ugly toothpicks by beetles. A new CU study offers some hope, but there are still threats to recovery, including hungry elk. CU geography professor Tom Veblen spoke with my colleague Michelle Fulcher. Your study was in the San Juan Mountains in southern Colorado. Those are high-altitude forests, and they really took kind of a double whammy. They were hit by two different kinds of beetles. What did it look like when you got there? Well, basically, everywhere you looked, you would see dead standing trees, a lot of gray. In some cases, over extensive areas, there was more than 90% of the large trees dead after the two beetle outbreaks. Wow. And yet, these forests are starting to recover from this. Tell me about that. So we took advantage of the opportunity that there were two kinds of bark beetle outbreaks occurring in the same space, essentially. Previous research tended to focus on a single kind of beetle. We hypothesized that because of this sort of double whammy that there would be a problem with forest recovery. But that's not what we found. We found that generally following the bark beetle outbreaks, there is quite good forest recovery. How can that be the case? Well, because the forest recovery depends on the presence of the small individuals of Engelmann spruce and subalpine fir that are already present in the forest before the outbreak. And those small individuals are not attacked by the bark beetles. So they generally provide a reservoir for recovery of the forest. You're talking about smaller, younger trees surviving while the big towering pines die. Yes. Even uh, in some cases where we don't have a lot of living trees with cones on them to produce seed, 
it's the understory populations of those uh, tree species that provide for recovery. And are there other species of trees, other types of trees that benefit from this? There definitely uh, is a very significant impact on the populations of aspen, quaking aspen, where the stands have been opened up by the death of the conifer species. We get a growth of the aspen. So some of the stands that were largely killed by the bark beetles have converted to stands that are mostly aspen today. I wonder, I mean, we think of bark beetles as pests, right? But are there other kinds of insects or animals, birds, whatever, that are new residents to this forest because of this? Well, there's a whole change in bird populations. There's a change in the forage possibilities for the ungulates, the elk, and the deer. So one of the issues that we examined was the impact of browsing by the elk on the regeneration of the spruce, the fir, and the small aspen. And by browsing, which sounds really benign, you mean eating, right? Exactly. And so what is the result of that? What are you seeing? The elk populations are quite high in the San Juan Mountains. The presence of the elk is a major influence on the rate at which the forests are recovering. The elk will munch on the leader stem, the top of the, of the small stems of the regenerating trees and can deform the tree. Rarely will they actually kill the tree. So the browsing by the elk is mostly affecting the speed of recovery rather than totally impeding the recovery to a forest cover. I know that overpopulation of elk has been a problem elsewhere in the state. Does there need to be a change in the way these forests are managed? Well, there's been a lot of controversy about the desirable size of elk populations, and there are different uh, interests in, in having either larger or smaller populations. So this is something that needs to be monitored. And the land managers have to engage with the public in terms of the size of a, uh, an elk population. But they, their monitoring really has to address whether or not the elk population is impeding the rate of forest recovery. So, yeah, this is an important issue that has to be dealt with. Once these trees die, do the beetles that kill them die? Do they, is there a chance they could come back and destroy this whole sort of hopeful news? It'll be a long time before we have another bark beetle outbreak in these same forests. They depend on lar large trees to feed and have a successful colonization of a tree. They depend on large trees with relatively thick bark to provide protection to, from low temperatures during the winter. So it's likely that it would be at least 80, maybe 100 years before the forest recovers to a stage where it would be very susceptible to bark beetle outbreak. One of the other threats to forests in Colorado and in the West, of course, is, is fires, uh, which are growing now in intensity in the land area they cover. Uh, is there the same prospect for this kind of regeneration in those areas? It's a very different story. There have been abundant studies in the Rocky Mountain region and elsewhere across the western U.S. that are demonstrating 
for the lower elevation, drier forests, those that are characterized in Colorado by ponderosa pine and Douglas fir, that following fire under the currently warmer, drier conditions, we're not seeing adequate recovery. So areas that burned, say, back in the 19th century that did recover quite well in the last 20 years or so, those same areas following burning are showing regeneration failures, not over 100% of the surface area, but in in many areas over the, the majority of the surface area, we're not seeing adequate tree regeneration. So yes, we're seeing a, a shift from forest to non-forest vegetation under the effects of warming climate on fire and then the lack of tree recovery. So climate change is hurting the forests. Is the damage to the forests making climate change worse? The, the potential impact on climate change depends on the recovery of the forest following a, a disturbance. So if we have very rapid recovery of a, of a forest, then we're going to have rapid tree growth. We're going to have high rates of storage of carbon, but that, and which uh, to a certain extent applies to the areas affected by bark beetles. It's not going to be all that rapid, but at least there is recovery of the carbon storage component of the forest. In contrast, at low elevations, following fire, where we're seeing a lack of forest recovery, it means that the forests are going to have a lesser role in storing carbon. And so that's carbon then that rather than being stored in the trees, in the forest ecosystem, will be going into the atmosphere, which is one of these positive feedbacks that tend to speed up the effects of climate change. The scale at which that happens or will happen is very difficult to estimate. Uh, The rate at which it will happen is also very difficult to estimate. But the, the trend is certainly a worrisome trend. Tom, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. Tom Veblen speaking with Colorado Matters producer Michelle P. Fulcher. Veblen is a distinguished professor of geography at CU Boulder, and he's co-author of a new study in the journal Ecology. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.